Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Nazanin Knight on February 15, 2021. Nazanin is a filmmaker in Edmonton, Canada, who has directed and produced films such as My Lyric I Never Knew, The Stoic, and Precarity, which we discuss in the interview. Her production studio, 1844 Studios, supports women of color in film. A Canadian woman of Caribbean and Middle Eastern descent Nazanin's nuanced stories reflect the uniqueness of her heritage as well as her international life. I started the interview by asking Nazanin where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. Uh, that's a little bit difficult to answer because I grew up in different places. I grew up in Toronto, Ontario. That's where I was born. And then my family moved to Lennoxville, Quebec. And then we moved again when I was in grade three to Edmonton, Alberta. So we did move around quite a bit. And I grew up as a Baha'i. My mom's family are all Baha'is. And my dad was a Christian when I was young, and he became a Baha'i later. And my dad actually, he came from a very strong Christian family. His dad was a preacher in Barbados. And my mom is from Iran, my dad is from Barbados, so I think right away there, I grew up with first-hand knowledge about some of the principles of the Baha'i faith, for example, the common foundation of, of all religions. I grew up, you know, being able to correlate the Baha'i writings with some of the stories from the Bible that my dad would share with me. And being biracial as well, I grew up really experiencing or being the product of the oneness of mankind and the elimination of prejudice of, of all kind, which are two Baha'i principles, fundamental principles. So I guess going back to some of my earliest memories from childhood, I spent a lot of time in Lennoxville, Quebec, where there was no Baha'i community with my brother and my mom studying the Baha'i texts, and I remember we would listen to passages from the Dawnbreakers, which is a historical text about the, some of the champions of the Baha'i faith and the Babi faith, which preceded the Baha'i faith. And those were stories that we just loved and grew up with and that we wanted to share with the community around us. So I remember my mom would invite some of the children in the community that were our age and their families to come celebrate the Baha'i holy days with us from time to time and to learn about some of these stories and we would share them together. So one of my favorite memories growing up was the Ayamaha gathering. And Ayamaha is a period of days called the Days of Ha or the Intercalary Days. It's a period that's characterized in the Baha'i faith by socializing, being hospitable, giving generously. So we would do a lot of gift giving during that time, especially giving to the poor and needy. 
and preparing for the upcoming days of fasting in March. So Baha'is have a period of fasting which follows Ayyamaha. So right before that time of restraint and fasting, we have this period where I think Baha'u'llah describes this period as days to, for the Baha'is to provide good cheer for themselves, their kindred, and beyond them the poor and needy, and with joy and exaltation to hail and glorify their Lord, to sing his praise and magnify his name. So I just remember the spirit of those days when we spend time in Lenoxville, Quebec, and we would bring together our friends and, and have gift giving. And as a child, we just loved those days, my brother and I. So that was a really exciting time period for us growing up in Lenoxville, Quebec, and bringing in the wider community to celebrate these days that are so important for us as Baha'is. And then after living in Lenoxville, we moved to Edmonton, Alberta, which had a Baha'i community of a very different size. In Edmonton, we have quite a few Baha'is, and it's a very vibrant community. And so here we we actually had more formal children's classes when I got here, and then junior youth gatherings, and then that led into really big youth gatherings that we would have at our house many times, or we would rent locations and have these really empowering youth gatherings. I remember we used to frequently draw on the wonderful Rezvan Mokbel. He passed away fairly recently. God bless his soul. He was so knowledgeable. Again, you know, going back to those stories from history, he was so knowledgeable about those stories and also about applying the Baha'i principles to the current reality. And he really had a way to speak to youth about what was going on in their lives and how the Baha'i principles and Baha'i history can inform their lives. And we would have these youth gatherings I remember sometimes up to 60, 70 youth would come to our house and we actually had balcony seating, you know, where some people were upstairs and watching these gatherings and then we would provide refreshments. And that spirit of community life in Edmonton, I will never forget that. I will never forget that. The Baha'i faith is a religion that's maybe a little bit different than some other religions, but the youth tend to lead the charge. They tend to be some of the most active contributors to the community life. Those youth gatherings really stirred and inspired the youth to engage in service activities in their community, and that was usually what followed. So it wasn't just a gathering for the sake of gathering and eating together, but we would engage in service activities afterwards different communities that I grew up in and regardless of the size of the community there was always something that was so memorable and stirring uh, about the Baha'i life that that we lived. Before you got into film you were a writer. Was writing an interest you had growing up? I always loved before even writing just that oral tradition of storytelling I remember I used to tell stories, again, now going back to my childhood, especially during those gatherings we had with other youth or with other children of our age group. I used to tell stories quite often, and we would often have these activities where we would 
tell stories in a chain. So, you know, one person would write one sentence, the next person would write the other sentence. And I just remember those were the funnest activities to me. I love that sort of storytelling and writing. And then in high school, I became a little bit more formal about my writing process. I remember I started writing poetry, and that's probably not uncommon for people in high school to start writing poetry all of a sudden. But yeah, that's what I did. I started writing poetry, and then I graduated from that into writing short prose pieces, and then from there got into longer and longer forms of storytelling. And it wasn't until... I think I was in university by the time I wrote my first screenplay. It was something that never occurred to me to write a screenplay, even though I love film, but it just seemed like something that you don't just do. It seems like that there's just this group of people who would be trained to do that, and then you can get into writing screenplays. But actually, in reality, you can just pick up a pen and paper and learn a little bit about writing scripts from researching them online and reading some of your favorite film scripts and then get into film writing. And it's not all that different from writing prose. It's just a matter of learning how to format your work and learning how to build suspense and learn about visual storytelling. That's how I got into screenwriting and I got into it by writing some of my favorite styles of film. For example, film noir was always something that I was interested in growing up. I enjoyed mystery, and I started writing that way. I wasn't writing films or short stories that I saw as contributing to social discourses in any meaningful way or creating social change. But then after serving in Haifa, I served in Haifa after doing my master's, That's when I really started to appreciate that link between sort of the divine nature of the arts and what I was doing, which was just writing on my own free time as as a hobby. I started to appreciate the value of the arts in being able to create social change, and I wanted to be a part of that. I always understood, I think you can feel it as, as an artist, about the mystical nature of creating, the mystical nature of the arts. As a Baha'i, this idea of craftsmanship actually links back to one of the names of God, we believe, the fashioner. There's this quote, it's a quote from Baha'u'llah. One of the names of God is the fashioner. He loveth craftsmanship. Therefore, any of his servants who manifest this attribute is acceptable in the sight of this wronged one. Craftsmanship is a book among the books of divine sciences and a treasure among the treasures of his heavenly wisdom. This is a knowledge with meaning, for some of the sciences are brought forth by words and come to an end with words. And in another quote, God grant that thou wilt exert thine utmost to acquire perfections as well as proficiency in a craft. And from a prayer of Abdu'l-Baha for the sciences and arts, Abdu'l-Baha beseeches God, saying, O Lord, help thou thy loved ones to acquire knowledge and the sciences and arts, and to unravel the secrets that are treasured up in the inmost reality of all created beings. Make them to hear the hidden truths, 
that are written and embedded in the heart of all that is. So I think referring back to some of these writings, I guess I didn't take storytelling so lightly anymore if it was a way to unravel the hidden truths that are written and embedded in the heart of all that is. If writing is a craft that is a book among the books of divine sciences and a treasure among the treasures of his heavenly wisdom, I started to take writing a lot more seriously later on and just generally the arts a lot more seriously and really try to connect with that spiritual side of the arts. Even to this day, I have that prayer for the sciences and arts on my desk here, and I try to say it every day before going to work. I just feel that as an artist, you're a channel. As a writer, you're a channel. And you're really reflecting one of these attributes of God, the fashioner. So I try to take that to mind every day when I start writing or when I work on a film project. And you published your nonfiction book, State Terrorism in Iran, Understanding the Case of the Iranian Baha'i Community. Tell us about this book. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about this book, but if you're interested in this subject matter, you can definitely find this book online at barnesandnoble.com or on Amazon. And I believe there's an e-copy still for sale as well as a soft cover. Just to give a little bit of background about this book, it did emerge from my master's thesis. So I studied at University College London in the UK. And my program then was Countering Organized Crime and Terrorism. That was the name of my program. And most of my classmates focused on insurgent terrorism for their area of study. I focused on state terrorism because state terrorism, you know, if you look at the statistics, state terrorism claims many more lives than insurgent terrorism, but it's kind of being operationalized out of academic literature. So I wanted to really highlight that and focus on it. So in this study, I created a working definition of state terrorism based on other research done on the topic. I examined the case of the Iranian Baha'i community and with the understanding that comparing the definition of state terrorism that I devised to what was going on in Iran to see if, in fact, the Iranian Baha'i community was experiencing terrorism at the hands of, of the state. So that's, in a nutshell, what that study was about. And I got to interview some 18 Baha'i and non-Baha'i emigrants from Iran. And that was definitely, for me, the highlight of doing any of this work. Because just putting aside the tactics of the state right now and just talking about the resilience of these individuals, for me, that was my takeaway from this whole process, was just the outstanding constructive resilience that Iranian Baha'i community demonstrates. And I think there's a lesson to be learned and that can be applied to any marginalized community or any oppressed community or any persecuted community around the world by looking at the resilience that the Iranian Baha'i community demonstrates. 
it's unbelievable the extent to which this community is essentially strangled from a socioeconomic perspective in that country. And yet, you wouldn't see the effect of that oppression in any of the interviewees that I got a chance to chat with. My mom herself was a refugee from Iran. When she left Iran, it was before the Iranian Revolution. And she had gone to Ghana to assist with the activities of the faith there as a pioneer. She was a teenager then and had moved to Ghana. It was a country that she had never been to. In fact, she had, I don't think she had left Iran actually at, yeah, she hadn't even left Iran growing up. So that was her first foyer outside of her country. And there she was on her own pioneering to assist with the activities of the faith and to assist the communities in Ghana. First of all, her bravery in doing that is definitely an inspiration to me. But when she was there to renew her passport at the Iranian embassy there, they confiscated her passport. And this was after the revolution now. So the revolution happened while she was living in Ghana. They confiscated her passport and she was without a nation. So she couldn't stay in Ghana. She couldn't return to Iran. Instead of giving up, which might be someone's immediate reaction to that sort of hopeless situation that she was in. She applied to different universities around the world and she got her refugee status in Canada and she got a full scholarship to study computer science in Canada. So I think my mom's story as well demonstrates that constructive resilience that I learned about through the process of creating my master's dissertation and writing my book. Ironically, while my mom, in the first day that she was at university in Canada, that's where she met my dad, who was assisting with international students. He himself was an international student from Barbados, and they met on the first day that my mom arrived in Canada. So it's interesting that out of sometimes the most difficult situations, It's interesting what can arise out of those and the gifts that can come from the most difficult situations at times. I wouldn't be here, in fact, if it wasn't for all of what my mom was put through in those days in Ghana. Would you like to read an excerpt from State Terrorism in Iran? I could read a short excerpt. Emergent data certainly suggest that it is necessary to emphasize the distinction between the state's intended strategy to terrorize elements of its population versus the actual effect of the strategy of terror. The data here certainly points to the claim that the Iranian regime intends to generate terror in Baha'is and in the wider Iranian public to achieve its aims of doing away with the Baha'i community in Iran. The actual effect of this strategy was quite different. According to participants, the Baha'is perceived adversity quite differently. The notion of self-sacrifice in the path of one's faith superseded self-preservation. The psychological dimensions of these apparently contradictory findings have been discussed by Baha'i scholars. 
just because the strategy of terror did not and does not work effectively to force Baha'is to recant their faith, to flee from their home country, or to continue engaging in Baha'i activities. This does not take anything away from the illegitimacy and criminology of the strategy. Nazanin wanted to add a quote from another work that is not hers, but rather from one of the central figures of the Baha'i faith, Abdu'l-Baha. This is a quote from Promulgation of Universal Peace, a text that's a compilation of the talks given by Abdu'l-Baha, the son of Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i faith. He talks about the wisdom of tests, and he says, we must realize that everything which happens is due to some wisdom, and that nothing happens without a reason. And elsewhere, Abdu'l-Baha says, be not troubled because of hardships and ordeals. Turn unto God, bowing in humbleness and praying to him while bearing every ordeal, contented under all conditions and thankful in every difficulty. So this is very difficult in times of tests to completely reframe what is happening to you and to be, as Abdu'l-Baha says, thankful in times of difficulty is something that every Baha'i has to work on every day and something that I certainly I have to work on and, and I think everybody has to work on. I just wanted to refer to these quotations in connection with what I was saying about the Baha'i community in Iran because certainly that thankfulness and gratitude for all the trials and ordeals that they faced really came through in the interviews that I did with the Baha'is in Iran. So Nazanin, why is the Iranian regime so anti-Baha'i? Well, I think it has to do with the rapid growth of the Baha'i faith early on in the Baha'i history. The Baha'i faiths grew very rapidly. It was a very popular movement because of the liberating principles. So let's talk about principles like the equality of men and women, the fact that women should be educated to the same degree as men and other principles like that. So the rapid growth of the Baha'i faith in Iran was definitely seen as a threat early on by the regime. Is there also a religious point of view that triggers this anti-Baha'i feeling or movement? Yes, there is. I mean, Iran is an Islamic state. Based on the principles of Islam, there's this notion of the seal of the prophets, and that can be understood as Muhammad being the final prophet and any other manifestation of God who reveals himself after Muhammad is seen as illegitimate. So anyone who follows a manifestation of God who appeared after Muhammad is seen as heretical. On that basis, you can see how in an Islamic state, the Baha'is would be seen as heretical. But that's just one reading of that statement in the Quran of the seal of the prophets. Now, I went on a website called filmfreeway.com, and I found a list of your films. And the first film I'd like you to describe is called My Lyric I Never Knew. What's this film about? 
So my lyric I never knew is a short film, predominantly silent film actually, about a young indigenous singer who decides whether or not to debut a song internationally that will expose her turbulent past and the forced adoption of her child. Although it's really short, it's it's a very dramatic film and it's actually based on the story of a young woman that I used to work with here. It's at an agency called iHuman. Then it was called an agency for youth at risk. So some of these youth had had run-ins with the law and they came to this studio called iHuman to express themselves artistically and to really get over some of the troubles that they've had in the past and see a positive way forward. And I think that's really what this film is about, is to see a positive way forward despite some of the traumas that people have had in their past. And that was the message that I tried to get across. You also made a film short called Precarity. So what's this one about? Precarity is actually a short doc. It's about the lived experience of temporary foreign workers here in Alberta, Canada. And it was based on the study done by Dr. Bukola Salami, who is a Nigerian-Canadian researcher. And she's actually the principal investigator for the health and immigration policies practice at the U of A. One thing that I really loved about this collaboration was that it was a chance to form a synergy between media production and academic research. It showed a way to disseminate research and ultimately we could reach a wider audience and convey messages that could inform policy and create social change. So here we were just looking at temporary foreign workers in Alberta and the precarious situation that they're often in. And then another film short you made is called The Stoic. So what is this about? It was sort of an inside joke. I used to serve at the Baha'i World Center in the research department, and, and I worked with my coordinator there, Todd Smith, and he always used to correlate stoicism with the hidden words. And it was a lot of fun. I would never have thought to have done that. He always did that. And it just inspired me to write this story about a failing but talented creative writing student who finds encouragement unexpectedly in a high-browed professor of fiction. Sometimes I do feel like that failing creative writing student and somehow I drew on my own personal experience. I think this film shows how self-handicapping can really have a hold on you as a writer and as an artist, but there's ways to overcome that. Now, you mentioned The Hidden Words, so just for the benefit of listeners, The Hidden Words is a work of Baha'u'llah, right? Yes, that's right. The Hidden Words is a mystical work of Baha'u'llah with very short, potent writings revealed in Arabic and in Persian as well. I would highly recommend that text for anybody who is listening. And you made a documentary short film called From the Grassroots. Tell us about this film. From the Grassroots, it was a short look at the community building activities of the Baha'i community of Edmonton. So we looked at the core activities that the Baha'is here are engaged in 
to build up their communities and empower their communities. And these activities are study circles where groups of adults usually come together to study the Baha'i writings and how they can apply to the current realities that we live in. We also looked at children's classes. We looked at the junior youth activities, in particular junior youth service projects and how they can ultimately lead into larger social action projects. We talked about devotional gatherings where the community comes together to say devotions, to pray, and we looked at a really interesting musical devotion that has been going on in our community and led by the wonderful Roya Yazdan Mare. She is such a talented singer and she leads this devotional with several musicians from our community. And we also looked at activities that contribute to social discourses. There we explored Marie Gervais' blog that she has and how she utilizes that to influence the discourses of society. And the last film I want to ask you about is a short film called Shades of Worth. What is this about? Shades of Worth is a film that explores self-confidence and beauty in black women. And it's actually, it's the first in a series of video that's aimed at empowering black women and women of color. And really, I'm using that film as a launching point for hashtag Shades of Worth. So I see this as a larger movement, an artistic movement of videos that will inspire women of color to achieve leadership positions. So right now, Shades of Worth, we're playing at the Toronto Black Film Festival and Halifax Black Film Festival shortly. So I'm really excited that this message is starting to circulate in the Canadian communities. So we've been through a lot of the films that you produced. Where can people find these films? In different places. You can find some of our films on Vimeo. If you search for 1844 Studios on Vimeo, you can see some of our films there. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and we're releasing content there on a regular basis too. If you find our website, www.1844studios.com, there will be news and updates there soon too. So are you the founder of 1844 Studios? Yes, I was serving at for almost three years at the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel, and I had returned there for Rezvan. And Rezvan in the Baha'i faith is known as the most great festival. It commemorates a period in history where Baha'u'llah spent time in the Garden of Rezvan in the outskirts of Baghdad. Notably, he publicly declared his station as a manifestation of God while in the Rezvan Garden. So Rezvan is a period marked by holy days. And on one of the holy days, I was at the commemoration in the gardens at Bahji in Israel. And the gardens surround the resting place of Baha'u'llah. I really recommend that you Google Bahji and Google the Shrine of Baha'u'llah because it's such a paradise in those gardens and it's such a beautiful place to reflect in the vicinity of the shrines and that's what I was doing before the the celebration itself 
I hadn't yet decided what I wanted to do after my period of service, and I don't think that film was even, it wasn't even really on my radar. Maybe writing was on my radar, but, you know, my studies, as I mentioned earlier, were in different fields like countering organized crime and terrorism, or my undergraduate degree was in psychology. I had applied to law schools and gotten into law schools. I could have gone in different directions at that point, but I really was reflecting and I was saying prayers about what I should do uh, that I would be able to serve humanity through that occupation. And sitting in those gardens in Bahji, I followed what Shoghi Effendi outlines, the five steps to prayer that can really help you with arriving at a decision. So the five steps to prayer briefly are to pray and meditate about something, to arrive at a decision and hold it. And then after that, that's not where the prayer ends. Actually, after that, you have to have determination to carry the decision through. And then you have to have faith and confidence that the power will flow through you and that the right doors will open. And then step number five, this is my favorite Act as though the prayer has already been answered. I think that's where many of us might fall short. Act as though the prayer has already been answered. And I'm no exception to that. I definitely am guilty of not acting as though the prayer has been answered. But for once during that time in Resbon, I did. I said a prayer. Film came to mind out of the blue. I wasn't in film, as I mentioned before. I, it wasn't something that I was doing. I had written a few screenplays, that's true, but I had never actually worked in film. But film came to mind, and I think for one of the first times, I truly did act as though the prayer had been answered. When I got back from the World Center, Baha'i World Center, I started the studio upon arriving at Canada. So that's what I've been doing ever since, you know. So I've been making films and really trying to stick to the mission of 1844 Studios, which is inspired by my understanding of coherency, you know, the fact that, you know, in every area of your life, that should be a service. And I think that your work and in the arts are especially great places to to offer a service to, to mankind. So what projects do you have going on at the moment that are in the works? There are some that I can talk about <laughs> and some that unfortunately I can't talk about just yet. We're editing actually the next Shades of Worth video, so that will be coming out very soon to our social media pages. Uh, and it's called Power Moves, and that's inspired by film noir style films. It's about empowering black women in the area of business and entrepreneurship. So one of the other projects that I'm working on, that's actually not a film project, but it is in the area of film and television, is I'm working with several stakeholders across Canada to do research on diversity and inclusion in the film and television industry. We started that project. It's a, actually a research project led by all women, all women of color, and we're looking at some of the factors that contribute to the inclusion and exclusion of women of color 
from the film and television industry. So I think it's really important actually to also build capacity in the area of doing research in film and television because there's actually not too many people where I reside that are actively involved in creating film and television products and also involved in the research side of this. So I think it's really important to just be able to especially be involved in the movement of diversity and inclusion in the film industry, as well as trying to live out the principles in your actual productions. So that's something, again, that we do, especially with the Shades of Worth productions that we're doing. Those not only star women of color, they not only feature women of color, but we really try behind the scenes to the extent possible to hire people from underrepresented groups and to give opportunities for mentorship behind the camera as well. And lastly, we're working on a film called Colorblind, which is an inversive romantic comedy film. You'll see that it's, first of all, an interracial relationship, which you don't see very often in romantic comedies. And also, the woman guides the story. The male character doesn't guide the story in this one, and she is responsible for the story arc. In those ways, we do things a little bit differently than mainstream media. So, Nazanin, why don't you tell us the various social media platforms that people can find you at so that they can find your films and watch your films? We're on Twitter, so we're at 1844S on Twitter. We're at 1844Studios on Instagram and Facebook. And you can also find Shades of Worth, so at Shades of Worth on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So you can find us there. Or again, if you go to our website, www.1844studios.com, all of our social media links are up on that page. Now, when people land on 1844studios.com, what will they find? It is a pretty streamlined website, so there's not a lot there. It will tell you where to find us on social media, and it will tell you a little bit about our work and our services. In addition to creating our own content, we actually do partner quite often with mission-aligned organizations to create videos for them. Some of our partnerships, for example, have been with researchers at the U of A. Another one is with R Alberta, which promotes a more inclusive image of Alberta, for example. So there is a little bit about our services on our website as well. In closing, Nazanin wanted to share a quote from the Baha'i Writings and explain how that quote informs what she's doing and what the mission is for 1844 Studios. So this is a quotation from Shuri Effendi, who was the grandson and the appointed successor of Abdu'l-Bahá. He was appointed the guardian of the Baha'i faith from 1921 until his passing in 1957. So in a letter written on his behalf, he says... We have to wait only a few years to see how the spirit breathed by Baha'u'llah will find expression in the work of the artists. What you and some other Baha'is are attempting are only faint rays that precede the effulgent light of a glorious morn. 
we cannot yet value the part the cause is destined to play in the life of society. When I founded 1844 Studios, this was the understanding that I bore in mind, that we cannot yet value the part the cause is destined to play in the life of society. That was written, though, in, I believe, the 1930s. And Baha'i artists have come a long way in playing a part in the life of society and being involved in the discourses of society. But I really wanted 1844 Studios to play its role in being a channel that could breathe the spirit of the teachings of Baha'u'llah into the world. So one of the things that 1844 Studios does is we create films that highlight pressing social issues. We work with casts that are diverse. We work with crews who are diverse. We offer capacity building activities for crews, mentorship, or well, we call them accompaniment, accompaniment opportunities. And we really try to do things a little bit differently and to emphasize the 12 core principles of the Baha'i faith in the work that we do. So that's not necessarily to make films that are on the nose about these are the teachings of Baha'u'llah. It's more to do with infusing the way that we operate behind camera as well as the underlying message that some of our films convey with these guiding principles. Nazanin, thank you so much for spending the time telling us about your writing and your films, and I'm looking forward to seeing them, and I hope other people will check you out and check out 1844 Studios and see the great work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Warren. Thank you for making the time. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Nazanin Knight, a Canadian filmmaker who founded the production studio 1844 Studios which you can find at 1844studios.com. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Savior.